Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Andrea Goulet is on a mission to operationalize empathy for tech teams. She is the author of the forthcoming book, Empathy Driven Software Development, has co-founded several successful technology companies, is the host of the podcast, Legacy Code Rocks, and has taught over 50,000 students how to turn soft skills, like empathy and communication, into software skills. Andrea joins us from Ashland, Virginia in the United States. Andrea Goulet, welcome to Maintainable. We're so delighted to have you join us. I am delighted to be here. Thank you. I absolutely love geeking out about legacy code and maintainability. It's so much fun. So I'm glad to be here. I had a hunch that might be the case. (laughs) So as you reflect on your experience in our industry, what do you believe are a few characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? The thing that I've landed on is that it really comes down to trust. So you know, kind of the commonly accepted definition of legacy code is from Michael Feathers, and he describes it as code without tests in his book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, which is amazing and a great read. And if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. I think that that is accurate yet incomplete because there are a lot of other places within the code that we need to pay attention to. So I describe it as code without trust. We don't trust our tools. We don't trust that the code's going to execute the way that we think it will. We don't trust our team members. Um, We don't trust the organization even. Sometimes, you know, we think of the business and that they don't have our best interests in mind. And so I think well-maintained code is when all of those things are working together and when, you know, it's it's working as a system and the, the key measurement of whether or not that system is effective is trust. And then the benefit and kind of the outcome is that we have resilient and, you know, sustainable systems that are able to respond to the dynamism of market conditions, updates and changes and all sorts of different things. How, how would like someone listening, how would they know whether or not there's like enough trust or not? Is it, is it trusting their peers or just, there's like, well, I'm a little bit of a skeptic about things. So I tend to I don't always trust that everything's going to go well or things, you know, I'm always kind of like, ah, if it happens, great. And then that'll be a great, great day if everything goes to plan. But I'm always like, "Eh, a little cautious. So for this, for anyone listening that might also feel that way, how do you delineate that? Yeah, I think, you know, there was, I, I think Ronald Reagan had this quote of trust, but verify. And I'm a yes and person. So I think trust and verify. It's great to be skeptical. We need to be skeptical. Blind trust is not what we're going for here. We're not saying just accept everything and never question it. But we're saying that we've built relationships within our teams where I know and I can predict with a degree of accuracy kind of how things would go. Um, either that's a conversation with a peer or it's, you know, I'm going to execute the code and there's not some random bug in a, you know, different, you know, a different part of the system that randomly crops up, but that, you know, things are relatively predictable. And, you know, I think that that doesn't come easily. There is a level of kind of certainty that we have to let go of because all of this comes down to really looking at things more as a system and less of a kind of linear, you know, I am going to do this, and then I am going to do this, and then I'm going to do this. But in terms of the amount of measurement, 
you know, that is one of those fuzzy metrics, right? Like you can, you can do surveys of like, you know, within your organization, but really I think it comes down to kind of these small and fleeting moments where it's either a level of frustration or a level of freedom where it's like, okay, the tests are passing. I feel good about that. Or, oh, this is so annoying. Why would somebody do it this way? So I think measuring your own, like making it more of an internal metric of kind of how frustrated you are and then observing where does that frustration lie? Is it with other people on the team? Is it with the code base itself? And then you can start to look at where you might want to start addressing some of those concerns. And again, that's not to replace all the co-quality metrics and stuff. Like we still want to measure cyclomatic complexity and churn and all of that and, and look at all of those metrics. But in terms of an individual and where you can make an impact, you know, I think when we can teach people how to do that effectively and the, the approach that I take is through teaching empathy on a very technical level, I think then we can start to move in the direction of resilience without having to do this big top-down approach. It tends to be more bottom-up, and it's these small interactions. Yeah, I always think about environments or different organizations where there's a, a lot of responsibility. I feel like managers of people or leadership in an organization is like, how can we, what can we do to make things better for our people? And oftentimes the, they're trying to problem solve that issue or whatever, you know, like how can we make these things better? But oftentimes I think it, there's a lot of literature suggesting that you're saying it needs to be more bottom up. Like how can they improve their own situation and their peers situation? And then that bubble up into the leadership as well. And so there's an interesting dance that I think both sides of that spectrum need to kind of like figure out a way to do that together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's just software developers, right? Like I think it was Edward Demings who said a good individual is no match for a bad system, right? If you're in an environment that makes it hard, then it's going to be really hard. But um, what's really interesting around empathy is that more increasingly in, in 2014, there's a researcher, his name's Dr. Jamil Zaki, and he's out in Stanford. Um, and he put forth a motivated model of empathy. And really, it's, it comes down to uh, empathy avoidance and empathy approach, right? This is kind of how we look at modulating behaviors. And in a, in a real world kind of setting, the example I give is that early in my career, I would use alt tags and I, would, I didn't really have a sense of kind of how they were used. Like I knew in general it was, but it was a check the box activity for me. It was a like, theoretically, someone might find this helpful someday. And so what happened, and this aligns with the model, was that my own self-interests, which isn't bad, we all are operating in our own self-interests. I was under time pressure. I, you know, it wasn't seen as a priority in my organization. And it was just like, just skip them. They're no big deal. But then I had a friend, Taylor, who was in a car accident and he lost his vision and talking to him about just how important they were, it opened my understanding to, and all of a sudden I had emotional connection to this thing that was abstract and I didn't think it was super important. And I, when I got to that moment of what should I do with an alt tag, I thought of my friend Taylor and I was like, how can I write something for Taylor that's going to be useful? 
And now because I'm doing that every single time I approach an alt tag, my code is better, right? And, and so we have those small interaction points of how do I write an error message? How do I write a test? Do I even write a test? What's my commit message going to look like? Do I even, you know, write a description or do I just, you know, name a variable foo and bar or do we try to make it intention revealing? Like there are so many teeny, 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 tiny little moments within our world and within everyone else's world. So when we're thinking about, you know, an executive, it's, you know, what values am I going to lead this organization with? When we're looking at, you know, people who control the budgets, it's, am I going to try to think of things and get the cheapest tool? Or am I going to listen to my engineers and say, no, if I had a faster and better equipment, I would be able to do so much better. And so that's where the trust comes in, because rather than having it combative as an us versus them, it's everybody working together so that systemically we can be investing in resources and cultures and practices that actually serve to create code that's more maintainable, more marketable, more useful, all of that. I appreciate you digging into that and sharing those examples. You know, you were mentioning the alt tag and I had this flashback to like, I feel like we just used to just stuff those with like SEO related type things like, oh, I don't know, like a... Because we don't really always know what the people we're going to be uploading into an app. And then let's say you had a blog and you have an image in a blog post. You're like, I don't know. It's just a, it's a photo or an image. We'll put the title of the article there. I don't know. Yeah, we, we've since learned a lot more about how that's not super helpful. Maybe a little bit better than just like the file name. But having said that, but you also you mentioned like commit messages as like a, a good example or what we name things in our code bases. And Trust, and I think that's an interesting way to think about it, is like, how can we trust that what we're changing is doing the thing that we're, you know, without needing to get like a full deep dive of the code base. And it's always one of those things in the uh, PR review process, I suppose, that if things look a little confusing to you, if you're reviewing someone's code or it doesn't seem super obvious, is it, and I like the phrasing of, that you used of internal or intentionally revealing. I really like that. I'm going to I'm going to reflect on that a little bit more, but there's, that's just an interesting thinking about, does this method name convey what it's doing or is, and could it 30 more seconds of thinking about it actually make a big difference in the future? Yeah. And I think it's just being conscious. It's being aware of that. Right. And that's why empathy is such a, a great skill to learn because it's like breathing, right? It, it arises unconsciously in many situations, but we have immense control. And we can choose avoidant strategies of, and we can choose to create our cultures, right, in a urgent hero culture, right, where that's going to dissuade those types of, okay, let me think about this. Let me take a little bit of extra time, right? Or we can lean towards it. And so by just even recognizing, like, and even things like, am I being prone to my optimism bias right now when I'm communicating a timeline? Right. And then how is that going to show up later? It's it's these tiny little moments where then it impacts our communication. And so I think the measurement of the amount of trust in the system is something that you can engage internally. But like doing the empathy driven development, it's very much an internal practice because no one's going to really see you do this. But the neat thing there is that you don't need anybody's permission. You can start doing this right now. You don't have to go to your boss and say, I think I would like to start you know, coding with a little bit more empathy. <laughs> like you can just start. <laughs> so it's true. That can be fairly empowering. 
Do you use the metaphor technical debt very often? I do in certain contexts. So I do when I'm in the world of software remodeling and people who like philosophizing about that. I don't find that it's a very useful metaphor when I'm describing it with people who are business-minded. And I went to business school. So, and I think kind of one of the challenges there is the way that a lot of people who run businesses think about debt. Because when we're using the term technical debt, we're really thinking about it more in terms of personal debt, like how we run a household. Like we don't want a lot of credit card debt. But debt can be a lot of leverage when it comes to larger investments and businesses. So I don't know that, you know, when we're communicating to larger organizations or the people who are making the financial decisions that it can, it can kind of sometimes create a little bit more confusion. So that's why it's, I tend to frame things more in the positive. So thinking about it in terms of code health, right? Like how healthy is the code base? And then like, this is what we use at Corgi Bytes too. So we start like building metaphors around that. So like you have code hygiene, right? You need to update dependencies, right? You need to, you know, do, you need to make sure your passwords are encrypted. You need to make sure that your code is in source control, like those kind of basic things. And then when you are at optimum health, like it's to achieve some kind of goal. So instead of tying it to this idea of debt, which can be a little confusing. It's more about like, what is the business outcome that you want to achieve? And then how can we look at the code base to achieve those outcomes? Because that's going to drive the majority of the decisions in how we modify or improve, you know, a code base. Do you feel like your own understanding or the way you think about technical debt or even maybe amongst people on your team has evolved and you feel like there is a period where you might have used it to describe something that we wouldn't now think is technical debt? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think that's kind of how I stumbled on this. I actually had a um, conversation at a conference with, with a CEO who gave me that insight about like, I don't think about debt as a bad thing. I think of it as a good thing because that gives me leverage to go build another company. Oh, I didn't know that. So, you know, definitely. And, you know, and, and I think that it's a good way to just think about it, but more, I think it's about the impact of the debt. Right. And, and it's about what are you able to do? And in a personal household, right, where the metaphor kind of starts from, it's that I won't be able to achieve the things that I want to achieve, right? And that's where the disconnect comes in. And so then, well, um, I think it was Declan Whelan, who at a conference talked about the technical debt snowball, right? And so, like, we can start to learn to kind of pay down some of the, some of that debt by making these decisions in a consistent way. But the way that we do that typically isn't like when, when Scott and I first started, he, he just has a passion for, you know, paying down technical debt. I remember one of the very first clients that we had, he had talked about, he was showing the client and it was like, look, I, we have 2% more test coverage. And the client was angry because he wasn't able to link why that mattered. And so I think that's the big key is that we can use metaphors, but if they don't work, then you know, really at the end of the day, they're abstractions to help us communicate well. But what we're trying to get to is an understanding of shared goals and being able to describe, here's a technical choice I want to make. 
This is why it matters to achieving your goals. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. For those listening that might be thinking like, oh yeah, like I raise some issues from time to time with the team or the product owner or the, the business, I'm air quoting the business people, you know, like, well, if we do this, we you know we would speed up our development p- pipelines or deployments time or our ability to turn things around, but maybe they haven't felt like they've, but they, they've not gotten a thumbs up on like doing those projects. Do you feel like there's often like a challenge for people to think about how to best frame it for that, for the particular audience that's going to maybe give them a thumbs up to do it? Yeah. I think the first step is to really understand, do you have shared goals? Because where I've seen that fail is that like, for example, if there is something that needs to get to market really fast, right, because it's more of a prototype or, you know, it's, it's more in the startup phase. I've seen a lot of tension because people who it's like, we need to start generating revenue from this thing as fast as possible. Yes, it's not going to be perfect, but something that is shippable is going to be better for our situation than something that is not shippable and perfect and, you know, has a hundred percent code coverage and all that. And so what I see is that a lot of times developers end up arguing on points that are based on their goals and what their perceived value of the business is. So my suggestion always is to learn, figure out like, what is the thing that we are jointly trying to achieve? And that can be with your product owner, it can be with your CTO or whatever. And and really thinking about it like, hey, Robbie, like you're the CTO. All right. I want to make sure that I'm super clear on what your goals are for this quarter. Like, what are the needs of the business? Because I want to make sure that I'm aligning my technical decisions to make sure that we're achieving that goal as quickly as possible. That's a powerful statement because then it's like, we're on the same team and it's not combative. And then you listen, right? And so when you learn, okay, this is kind of our goal, then you can start to dialogue and you can start to have negotiation around, okay, awesome. I have that goal too. An idea that I had to help us reach that goal faster is this. It's not intuitive, but if you start with the goal statements and you start with those, like, what are we trying to achieve? Then you have much more leverage. Yeah. Yeah. Much more leverage. Exactly. I'm imagining that some people listening are, maybe they're part of a large development team. And so maybe there are a few tiers or a few steps away from having regular interactions with Again, the business people, uh, product team and what have you. So for those people that are kind of like maybe feeling like a few steps away from that and have never asked these types of goal questions of senior leadership or the organization, because they just assume that information should be flowing to them. Like, oh, it's 
it's up to leadership to convey all these goals and then and then we'll deal with it. So it's like I should be receiving them as a developer and not going out and soliciting them because that's not my job to 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 understand what what the direction of the business is. Just tell me what I should be focusing on in terms of what's next in the backlog or something. So what do you say to to folks like that? Because I'm imagining consulting world, we might have a little bit If you're in a large organization, there is somebody who is like on your team or like, it doesn't have to be, you go to the CFO, but there's probably a team lead or a pairing partner, or even like a business analyst who is on your team, who you have coined as the business, get to know them, right? Take them to lunch and say, Hey, Jerry, what is your job like? What do you need to do? And I think that then it can be really disempowering when you're a ticket taker. And that's no fun. And I think this is, again, it comes to the alt tag piece where it's like, if we resign ourselves to be only ticket takers and to only take direction as it's given and to take no ownership and to basically just defer the decision-making to other people, I think that's irresponsible. I think that that leads up to ethics questions, right? And there's a whole, there's um, a philosopher, Mario Bruhe, who actually has a paper on this. It's on techno ethics. It's like, we can't hide behind other people. If we differentiate this, like this is where a lot of the problems in software come from. So taking ownership and saying, I need to understand what's going on and recognizing that is part of your job. If you look at like the IEEE like competency models that they're putting out about what a successful developer looks like, it's all of these skills, right? It's not just slinging code. So the goal there is learn, get curious. And the best thing is like people, I hear people say, I'm an introvert. Awesome. Ask questions. Listen. That's great. Like I was in sales. I started my career in sales and marketing and the best salespeople don't talk all the time. They don't pitch. Those are used car salesmen. They're sleazy. The best salespeople understand what people need and then act as problem solvers to help be a bridge. And so um, there's another people who like to geek out. <laughs> I forget the name of the person, but there's, there's the concept of structural holes. And so for your career growth, if you can be a knowledge broker between different departments then you are acquiring more knowledge. You are able to form more connections. Uh, you have more personal satisfaction and you become more valuable to the organization too. I think that's a lot of some really good advice there for folks listening. And I keep thinking around like these larger team scenarios, which I've admittedly, I've not, I've only had like one stint where I've worked with like a team of like around 20 developers. So I've never been in a part of a project that ever needed more than that. And I don't know what your experience is in that space, but when I when I do talk to companies that are that do have those types of situations, it, I hear things from like engineering managers like, "Well, there's a lot of like people come here and they want to do their job and 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 call it a day." And like they saw this was a good career thing, they weren't necessarily like I'm air quoting passionate about being software good software developers. Like, yeah, I can write some code and take tickets and do things like that, and and so that's my job. It's just to to help move the thing forward, tell me what to focus on, make it as simple as possible for me. Um, and so it's an interesting kind of paradigm if like also like we need everybody to kind of step up too and like. Well, and I think I want to be clear too. I don't think that this means that you have to go and like spend all of your free time when you're not working on open source projects and learn. like 
I think that's that's a different thing. I think you can go to work and do your job and that you don't have to be required to <laughs> do all of this extra stuff. Have a family, like ha- set boundaries. All of that is really good and healthy. But I do think that just kind of resigning yourself and never questioning. Now, certainly there are cultures where there will be pushback. 100%, right? Because they have set themselves up in terms of their organizational systems, that that's just not the norm, right? And so I think some of it is just recognizing and looking at the organization that you're in. I really struggled personally because I'm somebody who craves fast feedback loops and I like want to see my ideas implemented as fast as possible. And I don't have a lot of patience for really politicking and learning about a lot of different things. And so, but I have an aunt that that's her, like, that's what she's really good at is she's really good at learning about all of the different facets and then putting together something that's more comprehensive that reflects back here are the needs of everyone else. And so it could, and for her project sometimes took a year before she had gathered all of that information. Whereas for me, I, I really struggled on large teams because it was, here's an idea and I want it right now. Blah, blah, blah. I also have ADHD. So that's, <laughs> that's a contributing factor there. And so I think some of it is recognizing what environment you're going to be best in. And so for me, being in startup world is just a, a better fit for me because when I was in large organizations. I frustrated everyone around me and then I was frustrated too. But there but there most certainly are ways. Just talking to people, getting to know them and recognizing that you don't have to conform to the stereotype that a software developer is antisocial and doesn't have social skills and doesn't have empathy because that is patently false. It is false. The research does not back it up at all. <laughs> As I'm as I'm sitting here, like reflecting on some of this, the I'm thinking, what about for people that are they're interviewing at places? Do you think there's some good types of questions they might be able to ask? I'm, I'm, let's just assume that they might be getting a chance to speak to like an engineering manager and potentially an inter, a inter, at least an interview with a few people that they would be working on as peers. Maybe some advice on what sorts of questions they should be asking in those to kind of get a feel out if this is going to be an environment that works well for them. Well, yeah, I think first of all is taking ownership there as well. You are interviewing a company just as much as they are interviewing you and recognizing that you have choice, you know, especially in this industry, there's, there is a huge demand for our skill sets, right? So, and especially now in this market with unemployment being so low. Now there are definitely things where different people are getting laid off and people are moving around and that's always going to happen. But when you approach finding a new job as what do I want, what environment am I going to thrive in, right, then the questions are going to become evident because it's what do you value. And so, you know, it's not going to be the same for everyone, right? But you can ask situational questions like that you can research you know, motivational techniques for how to frame questions in terms of situations. So I always like to hear, like when when I interview folks, I love it when people ask me, like, tell me about a time that you had a challenging client and how did you handle it? And and asking those interviewers and, and 
I would argue that the places where people are probably going to be happiest are going to be where that's appreciated because I interview a lot of people. And then when I get, nope, I don't have any questions, like they don't stand out. The people who have put thought into like, this is what matters to me. And this is what I want to do. How does your company align with that? Like that stands out. And again, this is an internal thing. It's a, it's a identity switch where you're not passive. You are an active participant in your life. And without sounding all, you know, kind of woo-woo, right? This is how we get to maintainable code. Because if you're not able to dissent, if you're not able to engage in healthy conflict, then you're deferring decisions to other people. And software developers have a unique perspective because they see things in the code that are risks. And if you aren't in an environment where you can have those conversations, then bad things happen. We'll be back with our interview with Andre in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please, please, please share a link amongst your peers and or write a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now let's get back to our interview with Andrea Goulet. For anyone listening, what is empathy? Like, is that, is that feelings about things? Like, can you explain that to us? Yeah, so I'm writing a book, and one of the chapters is It's Not You, Empathy is Confusing. <laughs> so, one of the really interesting things is that the dictionaries sometimes they get it wrong. And so, the way I frame it is that there's a colloquial understanding of empathy, and there's a technical understanding of empathy. Just like how with coding, there are colloquial understandings of things and there are technical understandings of things. So I'll, I'll frame that in the code world first. When I was first learning how to code, Scott had kind of found me. He's like, wow, you have a systems brain and like you're, you will be great at this. Like, and so I was just learning. We went and picked out some stuff and we had been using the terms programming and coding interchangeably. And if you look in the dictionary, they're basically like writing instructions for a computer you know, they have very, very, very similar definitions. And so I was working on HTML, CSS, and I told Scott, I was like, you know, I really think I'm getting the hang of this programming thing. And his response was, you're not programming because I was using declarative languages. And so he's like, you have to initiate a state change. And like, I was like, whoa, what is, what is this? Right. So I think the same thing happens. He was absolutely accurate. And the difference in that and why there was tension because it really deflated my confidence. And Scott's intention was not at all. He's like, no, you're learning. And here's an opportunity to deepen your understanding. Was that I was operating from a colloquial understanding. He was operating from a technical understanding. So we have the same thing that happens with empathy. We tend to think that empathy is walking in someone else's shoes, right? That's what we think of. And in fact, if you look at like the Cambridge Dictionary Theirs is the ability to share someone else's feelings and experiences by imagining what it would be in that person's situation. But here's the problem. That's not empathy. That's actually projection. 
And so imagining your experiences in someone else's reality is where we get bias. It's where we get discrimination. It's where we get prejudice. It's where we get discomfort. And so there's actually quite a bit in the literature around just how confusing empathy is because researchers use different terminology and some people say sympathy and some people say empathic concern and some people say this. And so the field is becoming more nuanced. It's becoming more technical and we are just at the nexus of that right now. So to get to your, to answer your question from looking at all of the different things, the, the way that I define empathy is there is a compassion motivated, multidimensional, multidimensional, an individualized system of skills and abilities, which helps you accurately understand the emotional and mental states of yourself and of others, communicate effectively, and act in a way that helps more and harms less. And that's long, but it, to me, that feels accurate because it, there's a lot in there because empathy depends on motivation, right? Like you, you, empathy is a lot of freaking work. It's metabolically expensive, right? It needs to be worth it. We need to guard ourselves against burnout, right? And so the way that we do that is through compassion. It's multidimensional. So there are a lot of different things going on. You know, it's it's like we have to, there's a great researcher, his name is John Deacity. He's in Canada. He's outlined kind of a functional architecture, you know, of empathy. And so there's affective or emotional empathy, which is kind of that emotional synchronization. So if you've ever watched a movie and kind of got swept up with some of the characters, that's kind of that. There's cognitive empathy, which is the ability to recognize somebody else's mental state and incorporate it into your own. So rather than thinking of it as I'm going to take my experience and plant it into your situation, having it go the other way. There's empathic concern, which is basically caring about people, right? And like, and being motivated to help them. And then there's also another one that has been added recently of emotional regulation. So that is like, am I able to control my own emotional state to the point where I can then bring stuff in? So I like to approach things in terms of software metaphors. So I think one of the things that's helped me and helped the people on my team is kind of approaching this in a little bit of an algorithm, right? And so we can look at empathy. It's an, you know, like breathing, there's kind of like an opportunity, right? Oh, okay, I'm writing a commit message, right? Or, oh, there's some friction here, right? There's a lot of little decision points. And so then when we decide we want to engage, first thing in the algorithm I give is care, calm, consider, connect. And so that kind of maps to those four different elements. The first is, do I care about this person? right? And there are some signals there, like, am I using language that dehumanizes someone? So if I'm referring to someone as the business instead of, no, and this is a genuine thing. There's, there's like psychology behind it. And there's like interesting linguistics about why we do that. But just noticing, oh yeah, wow. I'm, I'm referring to them as not their name. I'm not actually thinking about them as a person. How can I change that? Right. And so then there's like loving kindness meditation. There's like a bunch of different things that you can do in terms of skills. Calming, same thing, like being able to notice and name your emotions and kind of think through like, how do I actually calm myself down to the point where I can listen? Consider is that cognitive aspect. It's that analytical. It's where you get super skeptical, not just about the outside world, but also about yourself. Where are my biases showing up? Right. 
how am I thinking about things? Am I just moving forward or are there any ethical considerations that I need to think about? You know, do I have good data or am I operating on data that was collected in a way that might be biased, right? And so just being really skeptical. And then it's like you move towards that emotional connection piece with the confidence that you've kind of gone through a little bit of the process and that it's more pure because if we operate based on the projection dictionary definition, what ends up happening is we create more polarization. We entrench an us versus them thinking. And so empathy can be used just as much to harm as it can to help. Because if we have empathy only for people who are like us, then, you know, we're moving away from that opportunity for connection. But at the same time, if we open ourselves too much and we have no boundaries and we allow other people to overtake us, then we're opening ourselves to manipulation and entrenchment and abuse. So it's all about this balance. Yeah, it's it's a really complex topic. But the thing that I think is the most surprising is that it comes down to motivation. It's not about genetics as much as we think. There's There's way less of a genetic component, much more of a situational motivation. And that no one is really good at assessing, like the in terms of empathic accuracy. So being able to like understand is somebody like, I'm looking at your facial expressions and I know you. Like the best married couples who have been around each other all the time at best are accurate at 35% of the time. So knowing that, if you're somebody who is like, oh, I'm really bad at empathy and I really, it's like, yeah, no one is. It's it's something you have to work with and you have to validate. So I think of like that as like TCPIP. Like I'm not just going to assume that like messages are landing. I'm going to validate like, okay, did the information like reach its destination in the way that I intended and taking that time. So there are a lot of different ways that we can use software metaphors to kind of increase the understanding and complexity of what empathy is. But at the end of the day, we can deploy empathy and we can execute empathy and we can operationalize empathy in these small moments and thinking of it in terms of a, do I want to move towards empathy or do I want to move away from empathy and trying to work with what we can to control and recognizing we're not going to be able to impact everything, but we can control what we have within our own experience and domain. So it sounds like a lot of self-work and I think that potentially requires a certain level of maturity. I think in some ways too, I mean, I'm, I'm, I might be making a, an assumption there, but it's, it's like, it feels like one of those things where you mentioned earlier, like the stereotype, I just want to do my programming. It's very, uh, logical job. You know, like you asked for this, I give you that end of just, you know, great. We're, we're done with this transaction, but to think about all the other nuances of like how we communicate with each other on a team or send back feedback on someone, how to receive feedback from people. I always feel like that's always one of the really challenging things for people to, or not fear giving people feedback because you don't want to, you're maybe don't lack some confidence that you're really good at it yet. Or you've heard people talk about like on these podcasts about like, I need to be empathetic. I'm not. So now I'm like, I think there's probably people out there that are nervous that they're going to cause harm. And so they don't know how to raise topics because they're like, well, you're going to, everyone is going to, right. And I think there's a difference of like, if, if you ignore empathy completely, you cause way more harm than getting it wrong in a moment with an interpersonal interaction. 
and especially like you can build trust and there's um a researcher his name's john gottman so he studies like romantic interpersonal relationships that last a really long time and can predict like which relationships are going to fail and succeed based on the way that people communicate with each other. And one of the most important things in those relationships, which I think we can also bring here, is that it's not about getting it right all the time. It's about repairing. I messed up. How, how can I learn? What can I do differently? Right. And then with that, you can create opportunities for co-innovation. Right. Like, OK, that didn't work for you. Like, what can I say instead? And a great example here was when I was first learning how to code, I would go up to Sky every once in a while and be like, hey, you got a sec? And I could just tell, like, I stepped in some muck and it was like, what did I just do? I don't, like, my past experience, that was like how we all interacted with each other. Like, what's different here? And so being all like, okay, what did I do? How did I mess up? Right. And taking ownership of our mistakes and recognizing, like, this is how you learn. I, I believe that like the the stereotype of people in software don't need to have any social skills and shouldn't, right? What that just means is that you haven't learned the skill, right? Whereas somebody like me who's in marketing, like this is a big part of my degree. <laughs> like I've spent 25 years like learning this on a nuanced level. And so just like you learned how to code, you can start to learn some of these skills. And that's what the research is showing us. The research is showing us that the genetic component of empathy is 20 to 25% of the discrepancy. It's, it's not a big amount. It's more about how have things been modeled? What skills have you learned? Like, have you been motivated to even do this? And so by tweaking some of those variables of like, okay, this is a skill I want to learn. Okay. And it is a skill I can learn. Right. And how can I increase my level of motivation? Just like you would with any skill you know, then you can start to practice because it's going to be a practice. I mean, that would be like saying, I am scared to learn how to play the piano because I'm going to play a wrong note. And so then you never learn. And so that's why this is a practice. You're going to mess up. There is no such thing as perfect empathy. Everyone messes up, but do you learn from it? Do you grow from it? Do you accept it? You know, your own personal accountability and then work to rectify things. Do you as you incorporate new information, do you change course or do you just sweep it under the rug and say, not my problem? So I would argue that if you are somebody who feels that way, it is very valid to have that fear. It is very valid to have that fear. And so start with why that fear exists and start small and start with yourself too. So empathy goes inward as well. So that when I give recommendations, it's start with yourself Start to learn to have empathy for your own situation and send some compassion your way. Then start with people who are close to you, right? And you'll probably recognize you're, you're way more empathetic than you might give yourself credit for. And I think a part of this too is because we've idealized, we've idolized the idea of empathy just on the same side. So like if we look at a lot of science fiction, empaths are seen as having this like supernatural, superpower, psychic ability. That's not what this is either, Right. And so if we're only looking to stereotypes to understand what empathy is, and if we're only looking at colloquial understandings, we're missing a whole world of nuance. And I think that's something that developers do really, really well in. Like we like nuance. We like things on a technical level. We're deeply curious about like, well, how does this work here? And how does that work here? And the cool thing is that there's so much neuroscience coming out now. It's giving us a whole new perspective on how this works. 
we're not limited to just observing behaviors anymore. And so there's just, there's so much there to just nerd out about and then try and experiment and learn. So, you know, you mentioned your book, uh, empathy driven software development, and you're probably in, I'm assuming in the middle of writing that or what sort of level developer do you think this would most benefit? Well, I think that it's not just for software developers. I actually have, I'll pull up uh, real quick the manuscript because I have three different kind of folks, like different, I guess, audiences, if you will, that I think could benefit from this. And the first is overconfident empaths, which might not be, but this was me. And so like I had been told I was an empath my whole life. I was like, oh, I know what empathy is. Empathy is my superpower, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't understand on a deeply technical level that the way that I was assuming and treating that those assumptions as fact and not considering that there were, that I was maybe only accurate like 30% of the time. Like I didn't know some of those things. And so I was operating with this confidence that I knew empathy, but other people didn't. And I think that is a really critical, those people have to unlearn their skills in addition to learning the new ones. And that can be really hard. So this book is not just for people who feel like they're not good with empathy, because I think it's, it's dangerous to go down the narrative path of the world will be fixed if all of the software developers just learned how to have empathy. That's false. Like we all need to learn this. This is not just like one role or one personality type. So the second is the competitive convincers who think that empathy is a debate where empathy is about you understanding me. Empathy is about me trying to share a point of view and you adopting it. That's not empathy, right? Because it's like, why can't you just have more empathy for me? Right? And I, I hear that a lot. And so empathy is kind of letting your guard down a little bit, recognizing that it's not a debate. Debate drives disconnection and kind of allowing yourself to be a little bit vulnerable and learn. And that that's how we're going to kind of move forward in some of these. And then the last one is the discouraged self-doubters. So these are the people who believe that they lack empathy, um, but it doesn't mean that your empathic ability is absent. I mean, even... It, it, the mode now is that it's, you know, 20 years ago, it was seen as like, oh, you know, certain populations don't have empathy. But now it's like, no, there there's kind of deficits in particular skills or like an, a condition is like alexithymia, where it's like really hard to like name an emotion, right? But that doesn't mean that you don't have empathy. It means that there is a skill that makes that more challenging but when you learn how to operate as a team and when you're building relationships and when other people have empathy for you and say, how can I build this relationship with you in this way, right? But being able to name that and know that about yourself and describe it, like that's how we get to this state. So it's not just the, the group that kind of people think of, although, you know, that's somebody who I definitely hope it benefits, but I, I really want this to be more of a systemic impact because it's everyone's not respond. It's everyone's responsibility. If you're if you're writing things and if you're operating in a technical capacity, this is a this is an essential skill, and you know treating it as a tra- technical skill and not not a software not a soft skill but a software skill 
then we start to realize some of the benefits of cleaner code and well-maintained code and, you know, code that's easier to ship, code that's easier to market, code that is more equitable, just, and fair, code that's a joy to work with, teams that are a joy to work with, going home feeling like you're actually doing something meaningful instead of just being a ticket taker. And all of those things have their roots in learning to operate with a little bit more empathy. Wow. Thank, thank you so much for like digging deep into like kind of thinking about your audiences for your book. I also understand that you have some courses that you're working on as well. Yes, they actually just launched. Awesome. So I'm so excited. So yeah, it's been empathy in software has been something I've been exploring for a decade. But since I got the book deal, you know, it's it's been diving deep into this research. And so I'm really excited now because I'm able to to share. So if you go to hardware dot dev that's where we're using the courses um and so there's two it's a two-part series and it's long because there's a lot here right so it's two four full day you know events so um but if you have some professional development or things like that we're going to plan on having these kind of once a quarter in terms of the live events that i teach and then we're Hopefully in the next year or so, we'll be able to introduce kind of more of a self-paced course as well. And then, of course, the book. So there's a lot here. And I think it's I think that it's useful. But what I want people to walk away with is just feeling empowered. And like you have way more choice and you have way more control than you may have thought you had. And so being able to kind of guide that in a, in a deeply technical way instead of just putting a veneer on and I call it throwing empathy confetti where it's like empathy is amazing. Yay. 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 But like, how do we actually do it? Like looking at it schematically. I'm excited. That sounds awesome. I'm definitely including links to that in the show notes for our listeners. And is there a non-technical, non-software programming developer book that you find yourself recommending to peers often? Ooh, that is a good one. I recommend a lot of books. I think I'm going to say the one that's right behind me. Um, so Nedra Glover Twab, she has a book called Set Boundaries, Find Peace. And just like boundaries are so critical in software architecture for well-maintained code, <laughs> boundaries actually have a huge impact on empathy as well. And being able to set and maintain healthy personal boundaries like you can't have empathy without that skill. And I think that is the skill that people who identify as empaths have let go of. They have very, very porous boundaries. Other people might have really, really rigid boundaries. So being able to kind of negotiate boundaries and, and looking at that, that gives you a lot of skills, you know, right within that. Yeah, it's just like crazy practical advice. I mean, it feels like a technical manual for how to set healthy boundaries. And I, it's a book that like I have been wanting to have published for a decade and I was, it came out last year. I was just like, yay. So (laughs) excellent. That sounds, that sounds like a good one to to pick up. I'm going to go order that myself later. Cause part of what, when you were talking in this conversation, you know, I thought about, I was reflecting a little bit on people that felt like I hadn't been empathetic with them enough, but I've also have set set boundaries where I'm like, I can't interact with you. I can't work with you. Uh, this is not like, and it's like just being open. I had a number of years of therapy to deal with that particular issue topic. Cause it was re- business related thing that happened, but eventually is like light went off my head. I'm like, we're, we just can't, we're never going to, it's not going to work between us. So 
but I just needed to like establish boundaries and just accept that I could, but for a long time I was really feeling really guilty. I'm like, if I could just level up at being more understanding of that person and where, where they're, then, then maybe we would figure these things out because they felt like they were doing a good job trying to convey that I was such a horrible person at being empathetic towards them or their situation, but it was, it was impacting work stuff. And so boundaries were really helpful and I've sense of like forgiving myself and like, and it's not that I haven't stopped trying to get better. I'm just like, well, I don't have to keep beating that dead horse. <laughs> well, I think this comes down to that. Like everyone is doing their best. Everyone is doing their best in every situation. And that includes you. And even if you've had mistakes in the past, it's not too late to own up to them and try learning new skills and moving towards something different. Yeah, I have the same thing. Like, and mine goes the opposite. Like, I, I'm like overly understanding. And like, so for me, and, and what's the interesting correlation there is that if you have too much empathic concern where you get sucked into other people's, you know, experience and like you don't have a good sense of self while you're operating with empathy, it can actually cause ethical problems. Because you get so wrapped up in one person's story that you forget the impact on a broader level. You have to have both. Empathy is about being pragmatic and balanced. It's balancing your needs and the needs of others and the needs of a system, right? It's balancing the emotions and the rational part of your brain. There's a lot there, but it's about balance. And that's why I think that tech, you know, technical colloquial version, like empathy is not getting lost in other people, right? It's, it's setting clear boundaries. It's understanding your own needs. It's negotiating. It's working to understand other people. And at the same time, like communicating really effectively. I could talk about this for days, which is why I had the course. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like that. And I feel like I could just keep throwing questions at you all day, but um, we got to get people back to their, to their, their dog walks that are listening to their podcast right now. That's exactly what I did this morning to get here to my office. Yes. Nice. What's the, what's your pup's names? I have a puppy named Yuki. She is white and fluffy and she blends into the pillows on my couch. And I think it's hilarious. So (laughs) So maybe we can get a a link to a, a link to a photo of Yuki for the, in the show notes as well. It's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Andrea. Thank you so much for talking shop with us today. Yeah. Thanks for inviting me. 